The first thing is you want to make sure that you have a broad spectrum of momentum frequencies everywhere. Okay, it makes it more robust. You don't want a system where the kind of sometimes people will talk about a performance heat map. You, you want it to be robust so that at slightly different frequencies, different shuffles of the data, that performance is reasonable. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Now, let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. I read an article the other day, actually, about the AUM in funds that focuses on exotic markets and and your firm was definitely mentioned in that article. And it talked about the total assets in, in, in those kind of strategy having gone up from about a billion dollars five years ago to they're estimating seven billion today, or, or I think was the number. And of course, I know, know that your firm has grown a lot as well. But how do you view that development and, and, and how big as a space, not necessarily as a firm, but as a space, can, can this become without sort of too many people chasing the same exotic well, markets? Well, I, I think that the space has a fair bit of room to grow. The CTA space mm -hmm. has, I think, about 300 to 350 billion in AUM. Okay? And we're talking about, you know, a number in the neighborhood of 10 for the exotic markets. And some of the exotic markets are very big and deep markets. The Chinese commodity mm. markets are huge, for example. Some of the interest rate markets are quite large as well. Some of the foreign exchange markets are pretty large. Now, one piece of evidence that it's not getting that crowded, just empirical evidence, well, when we went to a 100% exotics focus in April of 2017, before that, right. we were about 50% exotic, 50% not. But we said we're going to be a pure play exotic CTA. That's in April of 2017. Now, from then to, say, the end of September or even to now, the end of September, I believe April to the end of September, we were up 21%. Okay, when the CTA index was down one. So the exotic right. space has continued, and it's not just us. Other people in the space have done well also. Of course. The sure. exotic space has continued to perform well. In addition, we're not seeing the kind of weird kurtotic behavior, weird fat-tailed behavior that we've seen in the regular CTA space. October, for example, was a difficult month. There were some other difficult months for the CTA space this year. It's not been a good year for CTAs. And, and you've seen some shocking numbers, just shocking numbers in the, among regular CTAs, indicating that there's a fair bit of kurtosis in what they're doing. 
right? But you really haven't seen that in sure. the exotic space. Yeah, you have your good months, you have your bad months, but things seem better behaved. Right. No, absolutely. Being focused on, I mean, as, as you, you refer back to the CTA industry, and of course that's been known over a number of decades for being, you know, one predominantly futures oriented, you know, very liquid strategy, kind of the ATM during the cry, the financial crisis and trading on exchanges where there's, you know, very limited counterparty risk, et cetera, et cetera. Making the decision you made last year then to go fully in on the exotic, I mean, how, how much more education do you feel you have to provide when it comes to explaining what you do and explaining how you execute them successfully? I mean, how, how difficult is it to attract in, in investors' uh, attention? It hasn't been, it hasn't been that difficult. Okay. The diversification argument everybody gets, mm. you know, eggs in China, Colombian interest rates, and Spanish electricity. Okay. <laughs> you know, so people get that. Sure. Uh, they get that right away. The better performance of exotic markets over the past, you know, eight years, well, since the financial crisis, that's also pretty straightforward, although explanations differ. Perhaps regular CTAs would have performed spectacularly had central banks not rescued the world from the brink, right? Again, but you, know, you can consider the counterfactual. So diversification, better trends, I think people buy that. The point where some education is required is on liquidity. And the number one way to protect yourself from idiosyncratic risk, liquidity risk, is to make sure your positions aren't too large. Hmm. Okay, Part of that is volatility floors. Part of that is other position limits you can put in place. You don't want all of your eggs, even Chinese eggs, in one <laughs> basket. Right? That's step one. But another point that's very important is to rely overwhelmingly on momentum as your key signal, as opposed to carry or any other kind of signal. I think the Turkish episode will illustrate my point. When we talk about illiquidity, actually, there's a kind of asymmetry to it. It's usually a lot more illiquid in one direction than another. Right. Okay. So think about the case of Turkey. The situation in Turkey where inflation has been increasing, the questions have been raised about the governance of the country. And, and the independence of the central bank, the situation there has been deteriorating for months and months. If you're a trend follower, you're going to be short risk in Turkey. Let's put it that way. Sure. I mean, you may be betting on higher interest rates or lower asset prices, but you're going to be short risk. And it was a very typical crisis where things deteriorated, deteriorated, deteriorated. Then there's a catalyst and it goes down really hard. That is typical. I mean, 90% of the financial crises, and I've seen so many of them over the years, have this characteristic of bleeding, denial, concern, you know. Then there's a catalyst and things really break. But when things break, okay, and start moving quickly, if you're trading momentum, 
as opposed to other kinds of signals, you're very likely to be going in the right direction. Then it's when that, that peak of the crisis occurs, when things are really hairy, okay, that's when liquidity, quote unquote, dries up. Yeah. Right. And at that point, by the way, what we do do is we recognize that liquidity is not so good and we reduce or eliminate the position. But notice that we, when we do that, we're going the right way. By which I mean, if you were short risk in Turkey as the August crisis hit, it was not very hard, okay, to buy risk to cover sure. your short. Sure. Okay. It was very. It was pretty. It was pretty easy to do so. Uh, the problem is much greater if you're going the wrong way. And you need to get out. People can learn a lot, actually, from the housing market. All right. So in housing markets, when you get start to get into a bear market in housing, bid offer widens, right? Sellers in residential housing, sellers are reluctant to lower their asking price. The bid starts to disappear. Transaction volumes drop. And then gradually sellers, some of them force sellers, come in. And we'll hit low ball bits. But the reality is, if you're looking to buy, it's not hard to buy. Sure. Okay. It, it's the illiquidity is much worse from the standpoint of the seller with their expectations about what they might get. So, interesting point there. One question. So, do you have an exit as a function of liquidity as opposed to, you know, price turning around? Well, under normal circumstances where there isn't a huge change in liquidity, the exit occurs through the price and volatility right. changing. Remember that day-to-day changes in CTA-type systems, which are the types of systems we use in trading exotic markets, the day-to-day changes are driven more by changes in volatility than by changes in momentum. So, for example, in a case where a market starts falling very hard with very high volatility, volatility may double or triple, right, in a short period of time. And so volatility scaling will cause you to get out of half of your position or two-thirds of your position just from the jump in vol. Then if it starts to turn the other way, okay, then over a period of time, the momentum signal can pick up that you bottomed and are now turning. But it's the jump in volatility that, that causes the fastest and most reliable position reductions in a crisis. But to, to, to your question, we manage our liquidity risk so that we can confidently liquidate our portfolio in a matter of a week or so under most liquidity conditions. So when liquidity drops, then we have to, as a matter of principle, you know, as a matter of policy, cut our risk accordingly. And if it's bad enough, we just say, we just take a decision. We're not going to trade it until liquidity returns to more normal conditions. But the good news, as I said, is that when you take that, when you take that decision, the odds are really good you're going the right way.
Yeah. I was just curious, Doc, maybe because I don't really have much experience with sort of over-the-counter markets. How do you measure liquidity in an over-the-counter market on a day-to-day basis? Well, well, the first thing is you're interacting with dealers. Right. And as you interact with dealers, you see the bids and the offers that are available. You see the dispersion on the bid side and the offer side. And you also see the quantities they're willing to do. Okay. And so having a human trader, an experienced human trader, we have an excellent execution team. And they're very important for our business. Having them saying, you know, Doug, here's what the situation is. The sizes that dealers are willing to give prices on is, are half as large as before, you know. And, you know, the bid side is the bid side is very small, you know. The offer side is better. That, that, that will tell you the information you need to, to take a decision. Sure, 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 sure. Right. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned cash equities. So cash equities, they're not an exotic market. So what role do they play? Well, they're like, in some ways, you can think of what we're doing as like synthetic assets. Because what we're, what we're trading is momentum on factors. So, for example, uh, what's a a standard equity factor? A standard equity factor will be the value factor. Now, is value trending lower? Is it trending higher? So, basically, the equity factors you can think of as a synthetic asset expressing a theme within the equity market, such as value, such as growth, and there are many others. And I say they're like synthetic assets because... The value factor consists of a a portfolio of long and short positions at a point in time. And so you can can use CTA-like methods to trade these derived synthetic markets, if you will, that you get from equity factors. Got it. Staying with the equities, one very popular instrument there in that space is the VIX index. So volatility, is, is that a market that you trade? It, it is, but we don't have much of an allocation to it. And th- that is one market that we trade a, a little bit differently because a mm-hmm. naive CTA approach on the VIX is dangerous given the skewed and kurtotic distribution. So it, it, it's a little more complicated how we trade trade the VIX, but we keep both the leverage and the position size small. I mean, it, it's it's really pretty simple. I I don't want to spend a lot of my time having to worry about or explain a position and volatility because the VIX can positively explode. You know, I I have a lot of experience over the years with market crises. And you need to be really, really careful because if you simply trade momentum on the VIX, the roll down on the curve and the carry look very look appealing, but the distribution is really quite different from other assets. So that's one case where special methods are needed. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I think I think a lot of managers will, will say exactly that answer that yes, we trade it, but we do trade it a little bit differently, which which is absolutely true. I was just going to back going back to one question because you've got such an edge, so to speak, in implementing trades and 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 trading these markets, and 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 a lot of it is is off exchange. 
I was just curious. I mean, how, uh, from a purely operational point of view, I mean, how has this, I imagine a lot of what you do is governed by ISTA agreements. And I only really recall sort of the early days of of those type of setups. How, how has that evolved over time? And, and, and how, how sophisticated are these arrangements nowadays in terms of having multiple multiple brokers, or clearing brokers, et cetera, et cetera, for, for these type of markets? Well, I, actually, the swaps market is, for example, is very mature. Okay. And many things are standardized, and some things are actually exchange cleared, I might add. And anything that we can clear on an exchange, we do, as a, as a general sure. statement. So the market's very mature. It's just that from the standpoint of a CTA, it's a hell of a lot of work. It's not something they're used to. Now, sure. for me, interest rate swaps are pretty basic animals. I, you know, I think interest rate swaps are, for me, less difficult than getting my hands around lumber futures or something. But that was because, you know, for a while I ran the swaps desk at Greenwich Capital. So I've been dealing with interest rate swaps actually going back to the 1990s. So they're you know, there's something I'm used to. Uh, by the way, a lot of the instruments and over-the-counter instruments and stuff we trade are things I'm familiar with, you know, over the course of my career. I'm very used to operating in the OTC derivatives area. And things have matured quite a lot from the old days. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I mean, you were the chief risk officer at AHL, and so I was a little bit curious in terms of I mean, how do you how do you define risk? How do you think about risk, and and what keeps you up at night, if anything, so to speak, when it comes to to these things? Well, uh, there are a lot of ways to define risk. You you want to start with the you know simplest and most basic things. There are various kinds of operational risk. You want to make sure that your that your operation is tight that you don't have trading errors, you don't have the possibility of an order going in at the wrong size and being undetected. And so, you know, we pride ourselves on just an extraordinary level of precision, care, and many, many layers of checking to make sure that basic mistakes don't occur. So that's one that's one level. Then the next level to look at things is at a market risk level. Okay. What are the bets of the portfolio? How concentrated are they? You really don't want to look at the portfolio and see that when you after you take correlations and and you know and correlations in the tail into account that really you have one big bet on. That's something you don't want to see. Now, if you if you see that, that's a sign that the whole process wasn't constructed correctly. We have chosen sectors, you know, whether we're talking about credit, power, interest rates, exotic commodities, crypto, emerging market FX, and on and on, synthetic assets. We've designed this thing so that if you simulate it in the past or look at it in the present, you're never going to look at this and say, oh my God, I have one big bet on. You end up, as I was saying, with you know about a dozen independent bets, some more important than others, but sure. you even get to 70% of the variance of the system. So, And you can do this with the exotics better than 
in the standard CTA space. You want to build your portfolio from the ground up with these blocks that are pretty independent. And then you want to be able to weight the individual assets within the block in a way that where you get a lot of that diversification. It's no good to say, okay, you know, power is a great thing and end up having almost all your risk in Felix or something, you know, uh, German power. Instead, you really want to make sure that you're pushing that diversification down, not only from the sectors, but across many individual assets. So it's not been the case that when I scrutinize, we have lovely risk reports, they're works of art. When I look at this thing, I'll look through it and I'll say, this looks pretty balanced. You're not betting the ranch on any one thing. You know, I can spot a number of different themes in there. And and so that, uh, you know, that's a very important part. A critical component, of course, is the volatility scaling, which is uh, common among CTAs. But I think it's very important in what we do. Very, very important in yeah. what we do. Then there's another level. And that's the level of model risk. Okay. and. Yep. There, there there, are a number of different things to talk about. The first thing is you want to make sure that you have a broad spectrum of momentum frequencies everywhere. Okay, It makes it more robust. You don't want a system where the kind of – sometimes people will talk about a performance heat map. You, you want it to be robust so that at slightly different frequencies, different shuffles of the data – that performance is reasonable. You want to avoid binary things as well. Uh, trading at excessive speeds, that's, uh, that can get you into a great deal of trouble. Model risk, again, I talked about volatility floors, which you know most CTAs are involved with. Then we get to something that I think is important. How big should the momentum allocation be? Right. And from a risk management standpoint, generally, more is better. By which I mean the major alternative signals are carry. And carry has the unfortunate property in most circumstances of causing you to want more of it when it goes against you. Okay. Sure. And that can get you in trouble. Uh, think about think about the case of emerging market FX. You have some country in trouble. It's putting up interest rates. The currency is deteriorating. You like it, the currency better and better, the higher interest rates go. You know, that can be a problem. So we favor a relatively lightweight on carry. Then there are other kinds of signals that don't raise the same issues as carry does. And of course, the carry issues vary from sector to sector, but we're a big believer in focusing on the markets and using tried and true momentum systems and you know, putting our energy into getting the next great market or next great sector in. And you know, that's our philosophy and our approach. Marge, do you have some 
topics you want to raise as we start slowly to yes i have one uh, one final one i want to touch on i mean you mentioned the colombian interest rate swaps and i'm sure you can find you know a number of dealers that that trade them but just going back to the x in china because you've mentioned them quite a few times i my understanding is that access to the Chinese markets is restricted. So how do you get access? Is there a special cost uh, for trading those markets? How does it work? Well, I, I, I'm not going to get into all of the details on how we access the Chinese market. But the point is, there are people who are legally entitled to trade the markets. And working with them, we're able to get derivative exposure to the Chinese markets. You know, but it, it requires a lot of work and it requires strong relationships. And, you know, it's, you know, that's the key. And it does, it does okay. cost a little more to do this. All right. I wanted to end out on some more sort of fun and general stuff that is maybe not so much related to uh, markets and models and so on and so forth, but just for people to get a chance to uh, get to know you a little bit better as well, Doc. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, do you, do you have uh, children, if I may ask? So I have three. Okay, good. All right. So my question here is just, if, if you could pass on just one of, of your skills to your children, which one do you think that would would be and, and, and why? <sighs> Hmm. Hmm. You use the word skill. Uh, well, I use it. I use it. Um, you know, casually. Okay. I, I I'm thinking about it. I I, th I think a couple of things that come to mind immediately is sure. hard work. Yeah. There is absolutely no substitute for applying yourself consistently. It's really important in this business. The, the, you know, the systematic business is all about having a superb process, okay, and working at it and refining it. You you got you got you got to put the work in. You know, yeah. the second thing that's very important is focusing on building good teams and taking advice well. You're taking good advice. You know, typically when a problem comes up at work, you know, I'll call some of my guys into the room, I'll lay out the problem, and I will listen to what they have to say about it before even expressing my own opinion. You know, coming into situations with very strong preconceptions about how things should be and not, and not listening is a real barrier to learning. And working effectively. And then related to that, you want to pick people around you who are really good. You know, it, you don't want a situation where, where you can't learn a lot from the guys you're working with. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm learning stuff from Dave Dennison all the time. He's learning things from me, from Matt Stevenson, you know, from Tony, from the, you know, you know, everybody here. So, sure. you know, sometimes managers, you know, won't always choose people who will challenge them and, you know, who are on a similar level. I love that. Uh, yeah. I, I just want the best, but I want them to have good people skills, not be too <laughs> difficult either. But, uh, but, the, sure. but the point is, you know, one of the things I'm so proud of, for example, with my kids is my, my daughter's 
are extraordinarily hardworking. They're doing their university applications now. And in some ways, you know, I, I don't care what the outcome is because I know they've done their best and I sure. know they've worked so hard and I'm incredibly proud of them. I, I mean, they're just extraordinarily conscientious. And I like to see that on my team as well, and I and I do. And you know, the other thing, taking the example of my son who's reading biology at Imperial, I gave him some advice a, a year ago about how to get a great summer job. And I told him just to find out what the hot biotech firms are in this area and just write to the CEO. Say, I'm a student at Imperial. I'm interested in your business. I'd like to learn more. Can we have a conversation? He did it. He took the advice. He listened. Yeah. He did it. And he ended up with a great, great internship this summer, as well as contacts with a bunch of people. And that goes back. To, so I was thinking about the things that I actually am very proud of. Of course, I'm proud that my kids are smart, but I'm particularly proud that they're conscientious, diligent. They take advice well and act on yeah. it. And, you know, and answering the question, I sort of started with the things that I'm pretty proud they do. <laughs> no, that's great. I love that. That's fine. And uh, speaking about sort of best, so to speak, you know, what's the best question that investors should be asking, uh, you know, right now? You know, both perhaps of themselves, but also of the the managers. I mean, over there, I'm sure you've been in, in countless uh, due diligence meetings, and, and many of them, I'm sure, it is these standard questions that people come up with, but what are some of the great questions that you think investors should be asking when it comes to, you know, alternative investments in general? It doesn't have to be specifically just about exotics, but but just in general, when they look at at our space, if we call it that. Oh, then well, that's a great question itself. Okay, the the, the first critically important question is what is your edge? Why do you think you have it? Why do you think it will persist? You know, that's that's a very important question. The next sure. thing, and I'm, I'm not sure this is just something that should be asked, but can be observed as well, is try to understand the firm's culture. I certainly have a preference for a certain kind of culture and promote it here. You know, I'm very, I'm very happy with the fact that the... Uh, the folks on my team actually try to help each other. The The goodwill, trust, and helpfulness is just so high. There are very, very few cases I see of, of someone trying to undermine somebody else or upstage them. We really feel like we're in it together, okay? So understanding a firm's culture, looking at their turnover, the stability of the management team. And, and, you know, another important thing is the issue of specialization. You can't do everything well, all right? You need to choose something and focus on it. I think, you know, again, that gets back to what is your edge. I I think that it helps us a little bit that this is the only thing we do. We're not doing anything else except sitting here thinking about, new exotic markets we can trade and how we can improve our trading of the existing ones. There are some really interesting questions investors can ask, similar to the questions you've asked, you know, about why, why do you think momentum will work in the future, apart from saying that it's worked in the past? 
But, but those are almost ontological and philosophical questions that are very difficult. Um, by the way, probably the answer is something like anchoring bias. But, right. yeah. you know, the question, the question is always, why do you have an edge? Because you shouldn't be paying high fees to anybody who doesn't have an edge or isn't bringing something special to the table. True. No, that's very true. That's very true. I wanted to sort of probably just sort of the last point before we wrap up our conversation is just, you know, we've been around a few topics, but of course we we can't cover everything. So I wanted to sort of give you the opportunity to bring up anything you want really that you think maybe we missed or we didn't think about or, or just anything you want to sort of uh, talk about or if, if, if nothing, then that's fine as well. But I just wanted to make sure that you feel that we've been sort of covering the 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 areas that you feel is important when it comes to 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 you and 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 your firm. Well, well you've certainly uh, covered things pretty comprehensively. I, I think one point I would want to clarify is I think that I do have a measure of optimism about momentum performance even in the developed markets in the future. Sure. This period of Massive government intervention is slowly ending. It hasn't ended, but it's slowly ending. And, you know, I believe that momentum has been a very persistent phenomenon in financial markets going back as far as, you know, as history will take us as far as we have data. Sure. So I, I, I wouldn't want to come across as being relentlessly negative on regular CTAs. I'm not. My view, however, is better, the better diversification and th probably the better trends available in alternative markets make them really, really interesting and you know, allow you to make better pizza from these better ingredients <laughs> to use that. Sure, sure. No, I think that's a great. I think that's a great point, and it's a great place to to end our conversation, Doug. Because I completely agree with you. I think that it's been the you know the industry as a whole, momentum or trend following, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, has been beaten down uh, a lot. But uh, people need to look at these things in 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 a much longer term. And and maybe we've just gone through a a, a short difficult time when we look back at this in ten years' time. So on that note, let's wrap up this fascinating conversation where I think we all learned a lot of new things. So, Doc, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and experiences with Moritz and me. It's so important to have practitioners like you to share these ideas because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that is when real change happens. And to all our listeners around the world, let me finish by saying that I hope you got a lot of value from today's conversation. And if you enjoyed it as much as Morris and I did in making it for you, please share these episodes with your friends and your colleagues so that the conversation can continue. From me, Niels Kasselblasen and Moritz Siebert, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged. And in the meantime, go check out all the amazing free resources that you can find on the website as well. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. 
We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute, and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.